A high school girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Yeah, what I've done is I've tapped this phone so that when it rings, it'll ring at the station house, too. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. Your phone's ringing. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the March Mad Men podcast. This season is devoted to the slasher movie, a subgenre of horror that we all have a great affinity for, and I think our longtime listeners do too. The podcast began as It's Always Friday the 13th and later morphed into Every Night is Halloween, meaning that we gave each and every installment in both the F-13 and Halloween franchises a deep dive of hours and hours and hours. From the beginning, we were giving these films what we like to call a thorough but loving autopsy, which is a scene-by-scene analysis that really tries to leave no moment of the film unexamined. Well, tonight is our first loving autopsy of season two, and it's a movie I've always wanted to get on the slab. Black Christmas, baby. Let's string some lights, pound some eggnog, and hang out in the attic with Claude the Cat for a while. I, of course, am your host, John Evans, and tonight I am joined by my main men, the writer of Rennie Harlan's Devil's Pass and the worthy Vikram Wheat and Emmy-nominated producer rich eckersley together you guys have at least five kids two dogs a three-legged cat a bunch of chickens to worry about but i am so glad that you made the time to join me tonight to take this movie apart rich let's start with you man over our last shows you've put your pizza port brewery sponsorship in grave jeopardy what's the status man and have you totaled six hours of sleep this week yet Wait a minute, how have I put my Pete's Port sponsorship in jeopardy? <laughs> You've been on water for weeks, show, multiple oh, shows. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, you're right. Uh, well, I just want to say, uh, you know, season's greetings. I'm definitely coming in the, in the holiday spirit. I won't say what month we're recording this, but I can tell you it's not December. <laughs> um, and I'm excited about it. It's kind of nice to, to get a little bit of Christmas in some of the warmer months of the year. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm totally in agreement there. And Vic, uh, I, I know it's uh, we're, we're catching you at, at a, a little bit of uh, not ideal podcasting conditions, but tell us how you're doing this evening, buddy. John, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, <laughs> I think it's fair to say my kids' summer camp has ended, so I have been watching my kids all day, every day this week, at the same time as, as my wife and I are getting our small business off the ground there's been some interesting developments in terms of that. And then my in-laws show up uh, the day after tomorrow for literally the first visit by any of our parents to our new house in the almost two years that we lived here. So my, my wife has lots of anxiety about that, which usually makes her think that she's she's ill. Uh, and so then it's like, wait, is it COVID or is it just stress? I mean, of course, it's just stress, but I have to pretend. Please don't listen to this, Emily. I don't have to worry about that. She never listens. I mean, it's all gotten me a bit off my game. So I'm looking forward to diving into this and and letting the evil of Black Christmas wash over me, pull me back into podcast mode. And you two especially to to guide me, to hold my hands Hmm. as as we trudge out into the snow and sing some sort of demented Christmas carol to, uh, to Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder. It should be a delightful escape from reality for you to, to venture into Toronto, Canada, circa 1974, hang out at the sorority house for a while. I know I'm excited for it, that's for sure, and I think we're going to have a good time. It says something about my current reality that the idea of hanging out in the world of Black Christmas feels like a reprieve. <laughs> yeah, that does speak volumes. 
I was going to say it says something to the authorities that, that John's making plans to go hang out at a sorority house in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do it in the United States anymore, Rich. Okay. I'm on a watch list. <laughs> well, the format of this show is always evolving. This time around, I think we're going to jump right into the scene by scene and see where that takes us. We'll go big picture at the end, once the autopsy findings are in on another night, not exactly sure at the moment what that show will look like, but uh, I have a feeling that what we do tonight will only make that one better. So, without further ado, roll it. Bob Clark's 1974 classic, Black Christmas. I'm trying to... Where's my play button? Come on, John, get it together, dude. You're so disorganized tonight. <laughs> uh, like a chicken with my head cut off. All right, are you guys ready? <laughs> yep. That's not that's not funny, John. Okay, I have chickens. <laughs> and we're off and running. Black Christmas, everybody. It's too bad we can't listen to the audio together here because it's it's so creepy. The slow build here. I love this font, by the way. Black Christmas comes up on the screen. It's very I really, I very much wanted to go back and actually do like a side-by-side of the exterior home shots in this film and the exterior home shots in A Christmas Story. Because I actually think like even like the sort of the, the tilt of the camera, just like the way that it's approaching the house, the way that it's like lit um, from like the street lamps from above, like all seems very evocative of A Christmas Story. Like I feel like there was an intentional... Uh, approach to like matching that look i'm always noticing in this movie like the the humor elements remind me of a christmas story uh there's even like a bully's laugh at some point that reminds me directly of a christmas story but it's just so funny that the movie has so much fun with the juxtaposition of the safety and serenity of the christmas season which that movie is very much playing into and then it juxtaposes that with this horrific murder spree but it leads off here, playing into all the comforting tropes and the wreath and the lights. And as we watch uh, somebody enter this warm and cozy and inviting sorority house, this is Jess Olivia Hussey, our lead. I was doing my notes and I'm like, her name's not Hussey, is it? And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, no, it really is. <laughs> oh, sure. She was the she was Juliet in the mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet that we watched in high school that yep. we all had to get our parents to sign the permission slip because you saw her nipple for three seconds. Yeah, I absolutely. I can relate to that experience. And she was only a couple of years older here. So this was yeah. kind of overwhelming for her, uh, as I understand. And Rich, I know you mentioned that actually before we get into that, this POV shot that we're watching is very creepy. And I think we get some breathing here, if I'm not mistaken. And I do want to point out that this is like a proto Steadicam. The Steadicam per se had not been invented yet. But this guy, um, I'll give you his name later, the DP, he created his own for this. You see this sh- silhouette here, this shadow like looming against the window. That's one of our, our best views of Billy, the killer, that we get in the entire movie is this like looming shadow. I believe they actually used Ralphie from A Christmas Story to make that shadow. <laughs> I don't think enough is made of the fact that Bob Clark made both the greatest, arguably the greatest Christmas horror film and one of the greatest, like, Christmas family films. I know he did a bunch of shit sort of before and after and around all those, but that's kind of astonishing. Oh, absolutely. It's hilarious and surreal. Yeah. Due respect to Baby's Day Out. Sorry, I love Joe (laughs) Montana, but... DP Reg Morris is the guy there who created this jury-rigged proto-steadicam as uh, we actually see the killer climb this trellis against the wall of the sorority house in POV, uh, which is a pretty remarkable achievement, I think, at that time. It's very convincing. Well, certainly the ability to like scale a trellis with a camera. Right. And no crane. Considering how heavy those things were and the magazine and everything, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I thought it was a little weird that like it's sort of a pseudo POV where like we're watching Jess, Olivia, Hussey go into the place in like a kind of a POV shot, which is sort of, you know, vaguely menacing and voyeuristic. Uh, I already feel like we're peeping on these people as we kind of like peer in through 
the window of this uh, sorority house. And then it goes to a real POV, which is like unmistakably a POV, the assumed perspective of the killer um, in one cut. Did you guys like, did that throw you at all? Did you think it was a POV? And then it's like, oh shit, no, this is the POV. I didn't get bumped by a film. Like it was like, like two POV shots in a row. I mean, like definitely like the way you approach this movie is like you're, and the way that you end up exiting the movie too, is like, you're always kind of like keeping this like distance from the house and like slowly like punching your way in. I didn't notice the exact effect that you're talking about, but I do think that like you're immediately established as being a voyeur just from the way that this is set up. I mean, I don't think it maintains that, that perspective from a directorial point of view. Like you obviously become like pretty attached to Olivia Hussey's character and like how she's perceiving the way that things happen throughout the film. But at this point, you're certainly an outsider looking in. Yeah, like the movie begins uh, from his perspective, the killer's perspective. And then you're right, it, it largely goes away from that. But that does kind of inform a lot of shots later all the way along the road that we think could be a POV, but most of them aren't. I mean, I think there's maybe a couple more POVs throughout the movie, but it's it's interesting that we start with this very subjective perspective and then get increasingly objective, but it kind of informs everything the rest of the way that, that it could be. Like it creates sort of a, a sense of unease about the camera work that, that it could be his mm-hmm. perspective. In general, I think something that we didn't talk a lot about in the episodes leading up to this is just how voyeuristic the whole enterprise of slasher films is. I mean, that you know, whether we're talking about the Dario Argento Giallo films or we're talking about Peeping Tom, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that there is very much something voyeuristic, both in the perspective of the killer and in the role of the audience in the film. And I think that that's something Bob Clark is clearly aware of as he's setting up the visual language that he's going to use to tell this story. I was going to mention Peeping Tom because I, I it did come to mind as one of the few predecessors to this film that would kind of lay the groundwork for, for this kind of camera work. And, you know, obviously in that one, it's like super literal. He's giving you the perspective of himself actually shooting the film that you're watching. But I think, you know, Psycho had some some POV stuff, but this just feels like a big step, this particular movie, towards the Jason Cam and the kind of traditional slasher movie trope of the roaming voyeuristic eye. I happen to pause it on uh, Andrea Martin and her boyfriend here. I don't know if that's where you guys paused it. It's this dude who looks like... Jason Alexander from Seinfeld. It looks like Gene Siskel, dude. <laughs> Not Gene Siskel. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Gene Shallot. Gene Shallot. Gene Shallot. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> Rich, are you with us? <laughs> uh, somehow you were like way ahead of me. Hold on. <laughs> Gene Siskel. I know. I know the exact. I know the character you're referring to. While we are paused, I, I think if Vic was going to give his. Um, five-minute speech about Andrea Martin, this would probably be a good place for him to put it in. <laughs> Sorry, Vic. I don't know. Do I, do I have a five-minute speech about Andrea Martin? All right. I, I guess not. I, it just struck me as like you would be, for some reason, you'd be talking about her as this SCTV icon or something, and I wanted to make room for it if you, if you wanted to go there. Uh, I will say... I appreciate that, John, but we can, we can skip that. Okay. I did have one note about her because last night I watched the better part of the 2006 remake of this film, and Andrea Martin plays Mrs. Mack, the uh, house mother in that film, which stars oh. Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Michelle Trachtenberg. Maybe you want to put that on the, on the podcast, John? <laughs> I, I think we're on the podcast, aren't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I thought, I thought, I, I'm sorry. I, th- I assume we were going to cut all the talk about like which, where we were at in the, we're, you want to make sure you want to make sure you keep in you mocking me for, for talking about Andrea Martin for five minutes. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. That'll stay in. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Just, just checking. Sorry, I thought that was sort of off mic stuff. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that's got to go in there. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, so uh, now, uh, right after that, we've got the great Margot Kidder. So 
She's holding forth here. She's sauced and smoking. I don't think this was just a method performance. Uh, maybe it started as that and then became a lifestyle. Uh, I love Margot and I wish she was still around. She's gorgeous. Yeah. She's really stunning in this. She has so much star power. The choker is a nice touch, too. Yeah, it is. It is. She did have I her actually, demons. I mean, like, one, one of my like overall feelings of this movie, actually, is that she outshines Olivia Hussey, I think, mm-hmm. quite a bit in terms of before. Like, I would much rather be following her character um, and story consistently throughout this film. And towards the end, when like she kind of, like, well, when she sort of, like, you know, exits. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, to me, like, the movie actually loses steam at that point. She has the showier role, right? Like, she's she's a little more exuberant and extroverted. I feel like Olivia Hussey, she's struggling with real-world problems, and it's and, and that's sort of less fun than, uh, than, than what Margot Kidder gets to deal with. I feel like it's more of a gravitas-like sort of thing. I, th- I feel like she just has a weightier presence. It's like Julia Roberts in Mystic Pizza. <laughs> you can see why she became uh, a big deal that she did so we get this pov of the killer climbing through the attic window and and now starting to actually kind of eavesdrop on barb that's the margot kidder character on the phone with her mom which is like a subtle little story that like her mom doesn't want her to come home for the holidays and you kind of get the feeling that's a big part of why barb is, you know, this sort of sarcastic alcoholic is she has a bad family life and she's just going to like get the girls to go skiing with her because her mom like could care less about her coming home for Christmas. She tells her mother, you're a real gold plated whore. Yeah, I think is a, that's a that's a good line. Absolutely. We established that the girls take calls because they could be long distance calls from home during the holidays, especially. And that kind of helps you understand why they keep picking up the phone along the film, uh, along the way in the film. And, and, you know, of course the, the killer spends a lot of his time calling them and they have a grim fascination with it, but it's sort of under, you know, it's understandable why they feel the need to pick up the phone. So we introduced this Claire character here, um, who is like sort of the good girl and she kind of clashes with Barb and she has no interest in going skiing with Barb. Uh, she has plans. Look at this sweater, by the way, that Olivia Hussey is wearing. It's basically like two hands, holding her boobs. It's a bold look. It's just a print. Pretty but surreal. Yeah. Okay, so they were already getting calls from the moaner before the killer came into their house, which is interesting. So, you know, it means probably, I assume, that there was someone else, like more of a run-of-the-mill kind of obscene caller. And Margot says he's expanded his act, which is definitely a clue that it's not the same guy. Oh, so you so you actually assumed that it's a, that it was a different person at first, and now it's see. I had sort of thought that it was this was an ongoing issue, and that he's just sort of scaled up his uh, harassment. I guess it could be, but like it, I really had the feeling. I mean, we, look, there's so many unknowns in the in this film, but that would sure. suggest that he had their number when he was at another location, and so it's it's no accident at all that he he came here and that wasn't my first reading that he had targeted this place the bottom line is they're magnets for sexual harassment phone calls of course at a sorority yeah Yeah. there's no doubt yeah so are you blaming them (laughs) can we pause it here for a second eight 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 seventeen eight eighteen something like that i just want to point out i yes i'm paused Mm -hmm. i I do think that the sweater that she's wearing would be actually be perfectly in line with that, uh, with Dan Levy's character on a uh, Schitt's Creek. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, that's a great observation. Yeah. Some of his handmade, uh, haute couture. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So another great line uh, was when Barb slash Margot says, uh, she references the Mormon Tabernacle Choir making their annual obscene phone call. Uh, I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty funny. The long shot of all of the the girls listening to this, the, it pans from face to face in turn, taking in all of their reactions to what they're hearing is is pretty effective. 
it does seem like we were just at this transitional period where the idea that like you could sort of shout obscene things at women and that was just par for the course when you were walking down the street or whatever. And yeah. we were right at this period where women started kind of standing up and saying, no, like this, this makes us uncomfortable. This is not okay. No, it would take a long time before I think we made enough progress and got real sexual harassment laws and stuff. But I think it's worth something that at this point, we're looking at these women and really seeing how this language seems to be affecting them. It's part of what makes this movie so effective is this is like these these women are real characters and seem to be really reacting to, you know, the uh, see you next Tuesday word being thrown around on a phone call. Which is kind of ironic because I believe I, I listened to some interviews and special features and stuff and Claire indicated that they didn't really hear what would go in the movie. And what they actually heard was far less obscene than like they didn't, she for one did not know that he was actually saying those things until she saw the movie in the theater. And they, I have to say their, their reactions are pretty minimal. I mean, it totally works because you think they're just kind of like riveted by it. And, but they don't individually react to individual words in, in you know, in the way that I see it. I think it's editing, obviously. Like, they, they time the editor time the words with, you know, certain, like a bit of a facial expression or something. But it, it, it's well, interesting. They're not horrified, but the idea that speaking to women this way just is like, you know, rolling off of them like water off a duck's back, I think, is, is absolutely not the case here. Like, it's, this is clearly affecting them. But there is a line, which I love, this concept that in New York City, which is where Barb Margot Kidder is from, she gets two of these calls a day. Like, it's awesome. And it, it's hyperbole. She's exaggerating. But I think there was a grain of truth to it in those days. And I mean, New York City was a crazy place in the 70s. But I also think she's trying to, like, we can get into this along the way, but I might as well say it because, you know, the movie goes fast. Um, I think because their house mother is not really up to the job, the fact that that the Barb character has kind of seen it all, done it all, like she really is the de facto mother figure for these innocent girls. And I think she feels that she needs to maintain this facade, that this is all no big deal, where you get various little clues that she's actually pretty rattled by it. And that's part of why she like drinks too much and checks out, which has some tragic consequences. But I think that she takes like the responsibility that she's the only one that can really look out for these girls. I think that's a good point, John. I agree with that. Olivia Hussey's character like definitely has a certain amount of like it like see and it's kind of standing up for herself. Like like you said, I think that there's a a a depth to the way that they react to these events that goes beyond what you typically would find in a film, certainly around this time. And yet, like, I know that like, there was like, there was like a, a Gene Siskel review in particular that really kind of like trashed, like these, the, 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 these as, as being like sort of junk roles for these actresses, I guess in the greater context of cinema, perhaps. But I think that in terms of like, especially this type of film, I actually think that this is sort of feels above average in terms of the degree to which like the, that, that the women are sort of like running the show on this film and doing that. So like around these, like, you know, Bill, Billy aside, perhaps are sort of like doing it like in spite of the attempts of like the, the men in this like universe. So like, I feel like they're very, like these women are very human in this movie and like actually have like an impact on the plot. Oh, 100%. I mean, like the, the men are very little help in this film. And I mean, it's a pretty traditional final girl kind of thing, the way it plays out in some respects, uh, way ahead of its time. I mean, the whole template of the final girl had not been created. Obviously there's misogynist elements, but most of it comes from, you know, the perspective either of a psycho or the unfortunate aspects of the time, which I think we'll probably get into as we as we move ahead. Are you guys ready to hit play or any anything else while we have this breather? 
Uh, I'm sorry. Are you guys suggesting that John Saxon is no help in stopping the killer in a slasher film? <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. We shall. Yeah, some pretty rough stuff in, in Billy's monologue here. But I love that <laughs> she's impressed. Like, uh, Barb is kind of impressed with his, his profanity. Well, I believe my understanding that this was multiple performances, right? Yeah, it's more than one voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, the the Billy himself is uh, I think his name's Nick Man Cuso, and then yeah. uh, Bob Clark does part of it, and uh, a woman does part of it. I believe there's a 40th anniversary of this where you can actually listen to a commentary of the film done by Billy. Yeah, I, I heard about that. That that would be hilarious and crazy. I, I saw like a clip of him doing it, of of Mancuso actually recording it in the studio. So yeah, they referenced this town girl raped last week, and uh, you know Barb says you can't rape a townie, uh, <laughs> and the classic line. This is because uh, you know Claire is so offended. She's like, this is a sorority, not a convent. She gives her the Italian fuck off gesture because Barb from New York is a uh, woman of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Barb and Claire are different breeds, that's for sure. What really is the the juxtaposition within the house, right? Is Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder? Yeah, they they're very different as well. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and apparently, you know that that's exactly what the actresses were like at the time. So we get the introduction of Mrs. Mack, the alcoholic, kooky, den mother, sorority mother character, who uh, is an anachronism even in 74 in her fashion. She's a very 20th century kind of a character. Uh, She was based on Bob Clark's aunt. Uh, He says the alcoholism part, not necessarily her kookiness. So now we're following Claire back to her room, and we know that Billy is in the closet. We haven't really seen him. It's very tense as she gets her stuff out of the closet, and we we actually like clearly see his hand pressing against the plastic, and and then cut to his POV watching her across the room through the plastic of like a a dry cleaner bag. I feel like dry cleaner bags are a very sort of dated reference. I don't know. Do people still have those? I, I know that we uh, we still do a fair bit of dry cleaning, and uh, they do still come in those bags pretty much. All right. So fuck me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, uh, you're not as hoity-toity. I don't know. So um, see this hey, thing. John, this dry cleaning. Oh, well. <laughs> see that weird like thing on her bed, like watching her. Like this was a very stoner thought, but she has this like stuffed animal, and to me it was like the animated character sidekick, like obs- you know, really worried that the heroine of the show is about to go get into danger and he can't help her. And uh, yeah, we have a very quick burst of violence as he wraps that dry cleaner bag around Claire's face. And then we cut to Mrs. Mack uh, receiving a gift from the, the girls that uh, she is not excited about. Let's go ahead and pause it here real quick. Cause you know, we had our first kill. I want to talk about the Moo Moo more, John. Oh, yes. Let's definitely we, talk about we, the Moo Moo. Can we talk about Mrs. Max Moo Moo? <laughs> she, she later says something like, I wouldn't be, you know, I don't want to be buried in this thing. Or It's, yeah. it's grimly uh, prophetic, I think. I'm, I'm so confused, like, especially like is when you kind of get into like play by play. It's weird. Like mine is, is, is that I was like me. I was like, are you playing it like time and a half? But then Vic is also like right there with you. Are you on like so slow mo? Mine, like, mine is like playing slower somehow, or like I don't know. It must be somewhere again. Tubi. <laughs> I'm on the, Tubi. Is what you get with a is what you get with a free streaming service. <laughs> Rich, are you on mushrooms? Is that what's going on the I took the I took the gummy before this podcast. That was the idea, right? <laughs> oh man. I'm just I'm just winging it. I'm just like jump. I'm like just like jumping ahead thirty seconds every now and then just to keep up with you guys. I'm fine. <laughs> All right. Well, time is moving slower in Valencia than <laughs> elsewhere in the world. Apparently. Yeah. Let's talk about like the kill a little bit. Did you guys have any thoughts about it? I, I will say that it crossed my mind that 
in that kill. The movie treats our killer as nothing more than a shape, you know, which kind of is ironic considering that that's what we call Michael Myers. But it's, we can see so much less of him in this movie than we ever see of Michael Myers. I think it's pretty scary that way. Um, and this is kind of a good time to, I guess, broach that issue. How do you feel about that? How little we see about him, uh, see of him directly. I actually love it. Like, I think that the lack of definition around the killer is really part of what makes this work. And especially again, like we can't get too far ahead of ourselves But where the movie leaves it, I think, is part of what leaves the groundwork for something like Halloween. But it works in the same way that that Michael is this uh, blank slate in many ways, sort of physically. Right. Um, I think that this killer, in spite of the specificity of the his sort of sexual fixation on these girls, the fact that they leave the rest of him so undefined creates this blank slate that as a viewer, you can kind of put whatever scares the shit out of you onto. It's part of what makes the film so scary. Oh, 100% agree. Well, it's interesting. Cause I like what, what I thought is that like, while he's shapeless in like the visual sense, one of the things that sets him apart in terms of like the other like slashers that we've seen is how much of a, I don't know that you have a a really full understanding of his persona, but like you definitely get a sense of like personality from this. Like you spend time in the room with this character talking to themselves in addition to like the, the phone calls and like there's Mm -hmm. a repeated like motif and like a a storyline that, that, that plays out, you know, as he like, as he makes these phone calls where you start to get, a sense of what the the sort of backstory or the the you know the the origin of this this character or their psychosis is so it's like while you don't see billy very much like i do feel like you have a very good sense of who billy is and one thing that halloween does you know since you brought that comparison that's interesting is i do think you get that from from michael as well through his physicality it's just that here you're getting it more through the the snippets that you're of like dialogue from Billy, um, which is how he terrorizes anyways, for the most part, um, it's appropriate. Yeah. That's a really interesting thought that I observation that I hadn't really had, but this is very much the inverse of the traditional slasher killer as we know them. Like you see tons of Jason or Freddie or Michael Myers, but generally speaking, other than, you know, some, somewhat ham-handed at times kind of flashbacky things you don't get a ton of real psychological insight but in this film you get like the very blueprint of trauma that created this guy and for some reason it really reminded me of session nine you know the whole backstory with the simon character in session nine where you have this like idea that they were children and uh, there's you know some abuse going on and someone gets hurt and there's this kind of explosion of violence and the kid kills her sibling, right? And the, the clear implication here is that Billy had been abused and he abuses his baby sister Agnes and his crazy parents like confront him and want to know where she is because he was afraid that she would tell them what he did to her and so he he killed her hid her some combination thereof because he was so worried that you know it would come out what, what he did to her. And that is kind of what he's replaying over and over. He keeps calling these, you know, various girls, Agnes that checks out right for you guys. I mean, like, I think you pieced it together better than I did, but yes, essentially. John, I just want you to know how shocked I am that this reminded you of session nine. (laughs) That, that really came out of left field, man. Cause you never, never have anything to say about session nine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i don't know i mean it, it's a so, sort of similar backstory it really is it really is so, 
I, John, I actually, I, I agree. I more find myself thinking of this as we talk about slasher films, the role that this plays in the bridge between Psycho and Halloween and Halloween really laying the template for like the next 20 years of slasher films and maybe more. Uh, the, this does give us the psychological backstory. The The character has this very human element to him, I think, in the way that they don't. But that idea of hiding the presence of them, laying out their psychological backstory in terms of just giving you enough details to build the story if you want. I mean, I think the dialogue that we get from Billy over the phone and the, the story that you laid out, which I agree is correct, it's essentially playing the same role that Loomis plays in Halloween. We're going to give you some peak. We're going to, Christ, don't kill me for this, right? We're going to open the door a little bit to show you something of this killer, but we're not going to throw it open all the way. And I think more than Psycho, which really screws the pooch at the end, yeah. this gets that opening right, that they're going to give you a peek at who this guy is. They're not going to tell you any more than that, and that's what makes him so frightening. And I think that's a lesson that John Carpenter really learned and applied in Halloween. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there is no thudding exposition in this film. It's so artful, the way it's like just slipped in there and if you really honestly if, if you're not watching the subtitles it's it's pretty hard to piece that together but uh, we have the benefit of doing so which 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 I, I just want to point out like in terms of saying what a jump that was like that's a far cry from psycho who i think like yeah. one of the biggest weaknesses of psycho is the the overabundance of exposition no doubt no doubt it's a major major flaw that takes the film down a couple of notches at, at the very end which is not where you want uh to lose points so uh, before we hit play um there is a match cut from the stretching plastic of that dry cleaning bag to the house mother stretching her moo moo which is just one example of the dark humor that runs throughout this film i mean every time it's not being scary this movie is trying to make you laugh which is interesting. It really is. I I also feel like in the eighties, I mean, I brought up the, the dry cleaning bag for kind of a reason. Like in the eighties, there was a real fear that your kids were going to get suffocated in your dry cleaning bags. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like I, like I remember that being a thing. I feel like that's, that's why I look at that as sort of anachronistic when I see it now. But again, apparently John will strangle anybody with a, uh, with a dry cleaning bag. So. They had them in 74, 84, 94, 2004, and they'll have them in 2024. <laughs> All right. Before I hit play, like we can't listen to the music, but there's this creepy strings moment in the score that always jangles my nerves. It always tells you horrible, horrible things are happening here or uh, are about to happen. And apparently, I thought it was a harp at first, but it's it's a scraping piano is, is what the composer was doing there. Did you guys uh, notice that? Does it affect you? I actually, like, I immediately identified what's happening in the score of this is like, it's not just a scraping piano, but it's like the, the whole thing is done with like a prepared piano, mm. you know, which is this like process where they, where, where you take odd objects and wind it up into the to the guitar strings or the 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 piano strings themselves. Um, I definitely noticed the sound that you're talking about, and I and I noticed that later that that you get a lot of the sort of like alien and, and foreign sounds in here that are the kind of things you get when you wind up tools and objects in piano strings and then and then hit the hammers, oh. um, and you get these sort of like weird reverberations. So yeah, so I, I'd actually like looked into this and like the yeah the the, the guy who scored this movie did it by tying like forks and combs and knives into the uh, the the keys themselves. I love that. I also heard that it was uh, that they they would they also then took it and they like a lot of it's like slowed down as well. Like they actually ramped down the speed on the on the score itself to kind of like make it a little more grating, uh, which I think you, you can hear a bit of here. Yeah, it's so kind of avant-garde and and non-traditionally musical, and yet like so effective, minimalist. How about twelve twelve ish? Yeah, one second. 
Rich is in a different time zone. So. Rich is watching the film in ultra slow-mo. <laughs> I closed some other windows to see if that helps. Okay, I'm a tw- Rich, Rich is watching it from the bottom of a well in fucking India, right? <laughs> Sean, is that what Rich is doing? How's Lassie doing? Yeah. Right. You'll never let me live that one down, Vic. <laughs> ever, 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 John. It, it, it cut me deep. Poor Billy being uh, reprimanded. Where's the baby? <laughs> I'm going to start calling you up. <laughs> John, I'm calling you from the bottom of a well. What are you wearing? <laughs> so Mrs. Mac wants to indulge the girls, but she thinks the thing is hideous. And she puts on this moo-moo. And meanwhile, we get these vague POV-like shots. And actually, we see his feet walking away. We get a glimpse of the killer as he's moving about upstairs, having just killed, taken his, claimed his first victim, and moving on. Amazing, like, slow pans. This is all a real house. I, I think they lay some track and stuff, but so much of this is handheld camera in a location. I was actually going to say, it reminded me of a conversation we had around stage, uh, when we were watching Stage Fright. We were talking about the the way in which these films, which are frequently set in, like, a sort of a confined space with the, where the slashers is taking them out one by one. That's like, you actually have a great sense of geography in this film. Like, I feel like you have a pretty good understanding of how the house is laid out, which is something that is more difficult to accomplish than it, it seems on the surface. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the geography of the film is very well thought out and very clear. And one of the things about Bob Clark apparently was he was one of those filmmakers that like planned everything out in advance. It's, he knew it was a low budget movie. And so he actually used Rolodex cards apparently, but he was super well prepared. He could do anyone's job on the set meticulously planned in advance. They had the location for, I think even weeks before they started shooting, which was a big help. Uh, so we had a commercial there. I hope you guys did too, did too right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Mrs. Mac is <laughs> sneaking some hidden booze. Her comical alcoholism is uh, one of the comic relief elements of the story. She has this 17th century novel hiding place for her straight sherry in a book. Like the pages cut out like you'd put some kind of pistol in there or something. Actually, have one of those. Oh yeah! Someone, someone carves yeah. Someone carved out a book for me and gave it to me as a gift. I think I still have it somewhere. Well, that's fantastic. It was my it was my stash for a long time. <laughs> Save it, Rich. You never know when you're going to need that. Yeah. <laughs> I there is something I feel like, especially looking back now, about the role of the telephone in these movies. I mean, it really is like it's you know you're watching how much. You can't just not answer the telephone. It might be your boyfriend. It might be your mom calling from far away. There's no caller ID. There's mm-hmm. no way to know who's on the phone until you answer it. There's no star 69, so there's no way to know who's calling. Uh, it, it really was, you know, you think about a stranger calls and a stranger calls back. And, I mean, it was it was an object of terror, I think, in a lot of ways that it doesn't it doesn't make much sense anymore. Yeah, it's a, it's a 20th century concept. So Mrs. Mack's leadership in action is to ask the girl on the phone not to forget to turn off the lights when she goes to bed, um, you know, with this going on. Because, you know, the hens are running the hen house. Like, Mrs. Mack is not going to protect these girls. They take care of her, not the other way around. She's a raging alcoholic, harmless but helpless. And meanwhile, our heroine has her own drama to deal with, and the phone call she's on now is with her, her boyfriend, um, and this couple's plot line could be its own movie, but here it's only a subplot. It's a pretty well fleshed out subplot though. Oh, absolutely. And you can, we get that she's in a sticky wicket when her boyfriend says he loves her and she says, I know, which, uh, maybe that's where George Lucas or Harrison Ford got it. I don't know. She doesn't say I love you back. And now we're watching another comical Mrs. Mac finding where she's stashed Sherry throughout the house. She opens the toilet tank there it is. And it's a big laugh, you know, in the theater, I'm sure. But at the same time, you're also thinking, damn, this is the night guardian of these girls. 
Is it explicitly said that, like, is she, like, a former member of the sorority? I, I assume so. Isn't that how sororities work? It's not said. That- yeah, she says, Jesus, I wouldn't wear this to have my liver out about the muumuu. But no, you're right. It is usually the case. But no, that's not explicitly stated here. I haven't spent as much time in uh, Canadian uh, sorority houses as you have, John. So <laughs> I rely on you for this kind of thing. John is our resident expert at the church. <laughs> I wish. Uh, I don't entirely buy her. Uh, oh, okay. We've got this in- in- iconic shot of the chair rocking with Claire, dead Claire with this bag totally wrapped around the inside of her mouth as she had inhaled it. It yeah. is really striking. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's honestly one of the, it's one of the best things about this movie. Yes. Yes. It's, it's one of those things that people recognize, uh, instantly. And apparently like that, that actress on the convention circuit, whenever she feels like people aren't paying enough attention to her, she just puts the bag on her head and people are like, Oh, Oh, yeah, it's you, right? That movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think, too, like, we, you know, when you get into the next generation of slasher films, like the iconography you associate with it is the killer, right? It's Michael Myers' mask. It's Freddy's glove. It's the hockey mask. And so prior to that, like, the idea that you could find really iconic images just in the victims. I mean, that's that's what makes this stand out is they realize, look, you need an image that audiences can really grab onto and say, oh, shit, like that's Black Christmas Uh, in the same way that you can look at, again, Freddy's glove and say, oh, shit, that's Nightmare on Elm Street. I think that's part of what contributes to this film's longevity. It's it's its role in the history of the slasher film is that it does get that there are a couple of really iconic shots that stick with you after this. And I'm not sure that there were a ton of movies doing this before that. No, not to my knowledge. Well, I think part of what makes that iconic is the length of time that we just hang on Claire's face in that bag is what sells it. It just goes on and on and on. It becomes quite chilling you know you just you expect her to blink or or something and you know the the realism of it uh is impressive and unsettling i think her her eyes too yeah the fact like how wide-eyed she is so that like you really get the sense that like that you know like that the light went out of her at like the height of terror and she's frozen that way. And that, and that's a, that's a positive performance note. I think for that, that actress being able to sort of hold that and have that like sense of life frozen in time while still feeling like she's convincingly dead. It's a, it's a, you know, not a skill. It's a gift to be able to, to do that. Like, I don't know how you would know you could, you could pull that off, but, uh, she obviously was capable. She was a swimmer, so she could hold her breath for a long time. Uh, and that, that obviously helps. And I think the rocking motion too, right? Like we're used to dead bodies sitting still. The fact that she's in the rocking chair and the rocking chair is moving gives you this, you're able to paint the rest of the picture that the killer put her in the chair and then pushed it. He wanted to see it rocking. He wanted to see it moving. Like that that just creates such an eerie ambiance around the whole thing. Meanwhile, yeah, he's he's doing his his ranting here as as he's rocking her. Uh, It's 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 chilling. I had forgotten, like, where we're paused here, I had forgotten what a chunk of this movie is simply about Claire's dad. Like, we cut right from her face uh, in the bag that we've been talking about to her dad waiting for her the next day. Like, what would that be like? I mean, and I, I'm sorry to posit that to you guys, but, you know, as as fathers, but his daughter just isn't where he was going to pick her up the next morning. It's so crushingly relatable how these things play out. Something obviously that most slasher films don't really dwell on. Maybe they have a backstory with some character like the victim's brother who comes back in Friday the 13th part four, I think. But this movie reminds you that these teens are are people too, as are their families. Uh, Something that you think Nightmare on Elm Street might explore, but it, it really doesn't. As we've discussed 
ad nauseum, I think the parents in, in those movies abdicate responsibility for their children. This is a much more powerfully believable take on what it would be like to be the family member, in this case specifically the, the father, of a teenager slaughtered in, in a slasher movie. And some bullies still pelt the poor dad in the noggin with a snowball, knocking his glasses to the street, for which he will blindly and feebly paw. The kids from A Christmas Story for this generation, as I alluded to earlier, their laugh reminds me of that movie. Uh, some Bob Clark connective tissue for you there. Well, John, I mean, I think in the, in the future, in the, the, the future slasher films, what it's really about is isolating the kids, right? And that's part of what makes them so relatable. The kids don't have any grown-ups that they can rely on. And so this film just hasn't gotten to that point yet. This particular girl, I think, has parents that are that are particularly involved in care and creates this kind of B story for the or C story rather for the film. I don't know. Going forward, I actually feel like it's more effective when the when the grown-ups feel like absent characters, much like they do with Mrs. Mack, right? Like she can't be a responsible adult because if she was, they'd have somebody to turn to. They don't. They're on their own. And that is part of what makes the, the idea of these stories so frightening. It is, but I mean, would you say that like the dad's role in this, and I mean, he's completely ineffectual. It's not like he helps anyone. I mean, the man faints and, you know, just has like sort of a impotent disapproval. Like, I don't think he's hurting that dynamic at all, but at least we get this, I think, you know, powerful scene of just watching him kind of process his anxiety as he waits for her and hopes that, you know, it's, it's nothing serious. But of course it is. That doesn't relate to anything I feel as a parent, John. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, before we hit play here, does anyone need to use the restroom, grab a drink, something along those lines? I was actively grabbing a drink as you were speaking. (laughs) Okay. I wondered why your camera was off. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I could grab a drink. All right. Well, this seems like a good juncture to ask, Rich, what flavor of LaCroix is he sipping tonight? Is it Pamplemousse or, or what? Um, actually, it's, it's not a great idea, but I, I am going to switch to a beer. I, I, <gasps> I, don't, I don't even have a fancy one either. I have, a, I have a Made West IPA, which I do admire for the fact that it has no clever name whatsoever. It's just the Made West IPA uh, from Ventura, California. Well, this is a big moment. There it is. Rich pops a beer. I feel like it's been about, you know, 13, 14 episodes since that's happened. Vic, what are you cushioning your pain with tonight? This is, uh, this is a first, I believe, for the podcast. I am, I am cushioning my pain, uh, which I, I sort of like as a phrase, with a, my, my iteration of a dirty Shirley cocktail. It is vanilla vodka, ginger ale, and uh, a bit of sweetened lime juice. Mm, that sounds very tasty. I'm out of beer, John. That's, what, that's what's going on. <laughs> you just make that up? What's a dirty Shirley? Uh, no, I did, I did not make that up. You can, you can Google it. It's like a Shirley no, temple. I am, but no, but no, no, no I, I need to text. Listen, don't Google it from your work computer. Yeah, okay? I am not Googling it. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to clear your search history right away. You should probably just delete the browser entirely and reinstall it. They will take us all to jail, Rich. <laughs> You know, I've been drinking for a while, so I'm I'm downshifting. And uh, what I just had for the podcast that we've recorded so far was my lounging iguanas, uh, which is a Trader Joe's special hazy IPA pina colada flavored that I've I've been drinking lately on our show, and I'm a fan of it. Uh, at this point, yes, the dreaded Miller Light has come out, and so I'm going to crack one of those. John, I do have, I said I don't have any beer. I have one of your Miller Lights mm. in my fridge, and I debated whether to make a cocktail or drink the Miller Light, and I went for the Dirty Shirley. Well, you, you certainly have my blessing to drink the Miller Light, yeah. Vic. But, uh, well, no, 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 I'm going to save it, John, for the next time you come over. You never know when we might need to play beer pong or something. <laughs> Sounds uh, good. What Sounds is, good. Hey, What's the ABV on that uh, on that pina colada hazy IPA? That sounds really good. 
Oh, it's great. I'm not sure it's going to meet your, your standards, but it's not weak by any means. It's 6.5. Perfect. That sounds great, man. I'm going to keep an eye out for that. You should. They haven't had it lately at Trader Joe's, but I mean, I'm sure at worst case scenario, it's, you know, a BevMo selection or something. All right. Onward, gentlemen. We paused it with this unfortunate dad getting uh, pelted, and we, we meet by a snowball, and we meet Jess's boyfriend here, uh, the inimitable Kier Dulea, who was in, um, I'm sure I butchered that, that name, but he was in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey just a few years before this. He was eager to do this movie, but... Bob Clark, after auditioning the guy who plays like Claire's boyfriend, was like, damn, uh, I wish I'd auditioned you first. <laughs> Which, um, at least that's the way that actor uh, tells it. But uh, it seems like a pretty ballsy thing to make up. That guy, by the way, is named Art Hindle. You know, I kind of agree because Hindle and Hussey have a scene together, and I think they would make a logical couple. Kier doesn't seem as good of a match for Olivia Hussey, though he does do the tortured musician thing well, and there's something off about him, and that doesn't hurt the game that the movie ends up playing with the character. But he seems like kind of an awkward presence in the film at times. And Clark would then go on to feature Art Hindle more in his subsequent films. I think he has a key role in Porky's, and they became good friends. John, I'm just going to offer a counterpoint and say that I think the dad deserved to be hit with that uh, with that snowball. <laughs> <laughs> He's standing in the middle of the road. There's snow everywhere. You know, if you don't want to get hit with a snowball, stay home. Don't Tell go to Toronto. Yeah. (laughs) They knew what they were doing when they bought their tickets. I say, let them crash. I just kind of love the sort of pitch black humor of this guy's daughter is dead. And the movie like has some bullies knock his, his glasses off with a snowball. I mean, that's, that's dark. They're not giving this guy any favors. Should we hit play at 1812, the War of 1812? Yes. Rich is still in the opening title sequence, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm here I'm with you. Nate. I'm here with you at 1812. All right, Rich. Rich has moved on to Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have an anecdote about that, but I'll save it. Uh, maybe even for the next show. So uh, yeah, he's talking to. Uh, Kira Dulea's character about his daughter and, uh, you know, pinpointing that she lives in the Kappa Sig house, uh, the same one as Jess, which is, of course, this dude's uh, girlfriend. I forget his name offhand in the movie. Then we cut to the Andrea Martin character's boyfriend as Santa, and this is a really humorous sequence where like they're being profane and discussing their weekend plans, Barb and this guy, uh, with all of these disadvantaged children around them with no censor, you know, dropping the F-bomb and so on. Which is a great segue to this raunchy poster of this like grandma-type character flipping off the camera, which is in uh, apparently Claire's room. Uh, like, aren't they in Claire's room? Which kind of is odd, considering what we know about Claire, right? Because uh, Mrs. Mack is talking to the dad. There's a lot of like humor about her trying to hide the naked butt on the peace sign poster yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> I really want a, a poster with the grandma giving the, the finger to the camera. Is, yeah. that something, is that something that's available commercially? I, I sure I'll, hope I'll so. Ch- I'll check on eBay next time you start ranting. <laughs> if not, Rich, can I, can I get photos of your mother-in-law? That culminate with her flicking me off. <laughs> Ironically, like this hasn't crossed my mind until just now, but assuming that this is Claire's room, like, yeah, this is not in keeping with the Claire that we've seen so far, right? Like, she doesn't have any kind of edge. That's the whole point of her conflict with Barb, with Margot Kidder. Well, it's all kind of cutesy. Right. Those Canadian sorority girls. <laughs> <laughs> It might be an ass, but it's still a peace sign. That's true. 
that is that is a good point. And then of course he you know moves the door and and looks at the at the poster. Dad, the disapproving square. This movie is so irreverent though. It's so playful with its generation gap jokes. In in a lot of ways, it is playing to the cheap seats. You know, it's a it's a crowd pleaser, and I think it would really play. Well, certainly the crowd pleasing elements I feel like juxtapose with the psychological complexity of the killer that you outlined, John, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, yes, like you can watch this and have fun. But if you're a real horror fan, much of the films that really succeed in the slasher genre, there's something for everyone. If you want dynamic camera movements, it's here. If you want psychological complexity, it's here. If you want a naked ass on a peace sign, we also have that. (laughs) Something for everybody. You want a drunk house mother shouting balls because she <laughs> dropped her, her booze. Like, you know, that's that's here too. So oh. I, I think this movie this movie succeeds on multiple levels. One of the games it's playing is that, that you hear a lot of cat sounds and like I'm no I'm pretty sure the killer is making some of these cat sounds. Like he was luring in Claire before. But eventually we do see Claude again, the cat. So Dad reacts to walking in on Mrs. Mac cursing the cat. All these jokes cut back to Claire in the window. A sting, a reminder. This shit's no joke, even if we, like, keep making jokes. Okay, well, we just hit the one-hour mark here on this recording, so we'll go ahead and drop it as its own episode. Hope you guys are enjoying it. Hope you like Black Christmas, because we're going to be talking about it for a while. Until next time, adios.